I'm super excited to feature today's guest, uh, just a great friend, great guy who I've known for many years, and he's just always been very supportive of my work, and now it's my chance to return the favor and support his work. My guest today is, is my good friend, Tony West, and uh, we primarily talk about his documentary, The Safe Side of the Fence, and uh, it's, um, you know, it's a subject that's a, a little bit of a darker subject, hence the... Uh, Javier Mendoza song that I featured on this uh, particular episode, Blood in the Water. And uh, what Tony is talking about is his documentary is all the nuclear uh, byproduct that was used during the Manhattan Project and just how it was put into landfills, how it was dumped into creeks. And just, uh, it, it just uh, it's a subject that it's, it's a, I guess you could say it's a monumental topic right now. It's going on uh, all over the country. We hear, hear these cases. Uh, he primarily started focus, you know, his focus primarily when he uh, initiated the documentary was to talk about the workers who are handling this material. And he points out how there was this really no safety precautions at this point. And uh, just, it, it's, it's a real deep subject. But Tony is a positive guy, just a, uh, you know, he's just, you know, one of the most genuine people that I've ever known. And so, you know, him bringing the subject to the table and talking about it on this episode of the show is just, you know, he brings his spirit to it, even though it is a bit of a dark subject. So I, I think you'll enjoy hearing Tony talk about it, and then hopefully you'll go just uh, research some more, definitely see his documentary and learn more about this subject and see what you can do uh, for this for this cause that's out there, this 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 problem that we have. So there's a lot of activists, is which, uh, which is uh, why I bring up the cause, and he focuses on on a few of those people in his documentary. So it's, it's definitely good to see. I also watched a recent documentary on HBO and I, I should have wrote the name down. I'll, I'll post that as well in the uh, show notes, but it's, it's just a hot topic right now. So Tony, he was a little bit ahead of the curve as he put out his documentary a few years ago and uh, just worked. He worked a lot of years on it and primarily just a lot of labor that he put in on his own. So sweat equity and, you know, it was a, it was a subject that was very important to him really focusing on these people and what they had to deal with. So check that out. Thank you to, uh, thank you to my sponsors. I'll bring them up uh, one by one. And I want to talk a little bit more about Tony and, and just some of our history together, but Mike Aubuchon is back and uh, you can get your insurance anywhere, but I, for one, feel that it's uh, it's best to get it from someone that you can talk to, someone that is going to be there to give you the support you need in case you have to use that insurance, and Mike is that guy. So check out his information in the show notes page. Give him a call. Get a quote. You'll, you may find you'll save some money uh, on insurance through him. He gets paid by the insurance companies and not by you, so... Uh, you know, he's, uh, it's in your best interest to find the best quote, and he's, uh, he's willing to look for that. And a thank you to Dr. Mark Holland. Find his information in the show notes, websites, phone number. Dr. Mark Holland's a great guy, big supporter of the show, big supporter in issues such as this, um, just wanting to help people. And uh, just his energy is amazing. 
And I'm super proud to welcome a new sponsor, Stephen Walden. You can find his work at stephenwalden.com. For those of you that have listened to the show, you'll you'll know he has a familiar name, familiar voice. Check out his episode. It's one of the early episodes of the show, as well as some of the themed episodes that he's been a part of. Stephen Walden, just a great friend, great supporter of the show, great guy overall, an amazing artist. You can find his work, stephenwalden.com primarily sports work and pop culture and it's just his renderings his 3d renderings are amazing so definitely check those out order a print for your home for your your man cave if that's your thing uh or for gifts it's just they make amazing gifts it's wonderful work and super proud of of what he does i met tony back in uh, my days working for the st louis cardinals and uh just met him up in the press box just an amazing dude been working camera down for sporting events, blues, Cardinals for a number of years, has worked freelance now, you know, as I noted before, he's, he's now a, a documentary director and just, just an amazing dude. And, uh, one of the cool things about Tony, very supportive. And, uh, when I was out of college, I had a, a film called Java shot it on film, put it together that way. It was, you know, really interesting process. Technology was really different back then. But uh, Tony was just so cool that he um, he set up a screening of Java as well as uh, a film of a, another friend of his on Bush State at Bush Stadium on the uh, on the scoreboard, and it was just it was just so amazing to see the work there, a gathering of great people, and just watch it from the seats of Bush Stadium, a place where I've watched many baseball games over the years, and just. Just, yeah, super cool that he, he did that. And just, as I said, always been supportive. And, and here he is now on the show. And you can find out a little bit more about my work, KenCalcaterra.com. There's some reels and all that. I'm on YouTube, social media, Instagram, Ken Calcaterra. So, you know, check my name there. Look on the on the show page. I have some links on SoundCloud. You can find my work. I'm going to put a link to Tony's documentary so you can link to that and in uh, any other links that uh, are applicable to him. But, uh, you know, I thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the support. And uh, just just really happy to bring to bring you, the audience, just, you know, people that you've never heard of, these conversations and just different work that, uh, that you might not have been exposed to. So it's just good to be able to put that out there. And I feel really great about that. So here he is. Here it is, the conversation with my good buddy, Tony West. Super excited, as, as you'll tell from the opening of this. Just I love this guy, my man. This is this is such a treat to sit here and chat with you. Uh, it's been a while since we we've had a chance to catch up. And uh, Chuck Stanton just had lunch with him. He says hello. Tell him I said hello. He's great. <laughs> love yeah. working with Chuck. I uh, love best working in, the, in yeah. the business. I know, man. He brings so much to a project, not just from sound, but just uh, from his observations and other things. I mean, he's, he's probably one of my favorite people to work with and he's just so chill. Yeah. He's good. He's great. He's not just a sound guy. He's an extra set of eyes there for lighting and, and, uh, and a good angle for the camera. He's a smart guy and he's a funny guy and, uh, love working with him. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I had a nice lunch with him. Just wrapped about a bunch of different things. Now here we are. So it's a, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's just great. The people that, that I first met, I, I was talking to a guy named, um, Ben Hockman, he's a sports columnist for the Post Dispatch. Took over for Bernie, oh, okay. and was just talking about the press box job that I had. Yeah, and just and so many great, wonderful people like yourself that I met just up there selling meal tickets. So yeah. some people who I just consider just like dear friends and just people that you know are just always be in my heart. I met from that little job. 
Yeah. So it's it's amazing. <laughs> so I I think I still need to do more little jobs like that and get out there and just keep those connections going. Yeah, it's 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 you know, St. Louis like people like to call it a uh uh, a small big town kind of really you know because uh everybody's kind of connected in this town most people know uh you you'll you you're you're so you're probably almost you know that they say six degrees of separation to st louis it seems like it's like three because you'll know somebody that knows somebody and it's great man it's a great it's a great town and uh you know it's it's first of all, it's an honor to be on your show because I've been listening to your podcast and it's amazing. You have great you're people one, on there. You're that one guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 your podcast. And I, you know, I was listening. And I was like, man, that podcast. You know, I'm not surprised because you always been a very talented guy. You know, oh, we could you. talk about your films and stuff. You were you were producing films, you know, years ago, early on. Your stuff was amazing. Oh, thank you. And. Uh, I was just, so I've always been a big fan of yours anyway. <laughs> and now you got your podcast going. I was like, I'm going to be on Ken's podcast. Awesome. It's a great format. I, I enjoy the format. We can just really connect. It doesn't have to be perfect. So it's just fun. Just to see where it goes. And that's why I wanted to you know get you here, see what you've been up to, and talk about a, a, an amazing project that you put together, a Labor of Love, that you, you put a, a ton of hours into. That's, yeah. yeah, that's how we measure hours and tons. Yes. But no, yes. you put so much time and heart and effort and good things are happening from that and you're raising social awareness. Uh, so just let's t- tell the listeners what Tony West has been up to recently. Okay, well, I produced a documentary called The Safe Side of the Fence. And that title is kind of an ironic title and uh, it's 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 essentially about nuclear workers and uh Cold War workers that became contaminated from the work during the Manhattan Project in the Cold War, and uh, I, being from St. Louis, I shot it here uh, and produced it here, and it's really the story. Uh, the story kind of focuses on um, uh, during uh, World War II. Once the United States decides, hey, we need to make a bomb before the Germans make one. Uh, first, we had to figure out how to control, you know, a self-sustained chain reaction, a splitting of the atom, you know. And Enrico Fermi was going to do this test to kind of, you know, make a self-sustained chain reaction in Chicago. But before he could do that, he needed somebody to refine tons of uranium. And nobody had really ever done that before. So we're going around looking at some big chemical companies who might be able to do that. And people were like, no, thanks. You know, that sounds kind of dangerous. Don't really want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did it here at a company called Malincrot. Uh, it was a pharmaceutical company. And uh, we were very successful at uh, refining this uranium. And we sent it up to Chicago for Fermi to do this test. The test is successful. And uh, it pretty much took... took uh, you know the rest of the history of World War Two. They, you know, they do the Trinity test, and of course, they drop the bombs in in uh, Japan. Uh, but but Malincrat's work continued because uh, this uranium that they were refining was they were so good at it. And of course, the Cold War breaks out, and they're like, oh, we need to make some more bombs, and uh, let's get these guys in on that. So, but really, the main story was after these guys uh, do that work down there. Uh, a lot of them became contaminated because they weren't protecting these workers, you know, early on. And of course, uh, 
some of that material uh, ends up being dumped all over St. Louis and in various areas. And so my film is broken down into two sections. It's broken down into workers and waste. Um, after Malachi, uh produced this material, they didn't really consider it waste. They felt like, oh, we can sell this material. And some and people wanted to buy it and they wanted to, you know, try to extract some of that uranium and use it for other purposes. And so um, as they were trying to store the material, they weren't storing it properly. And then and you'll see that in the film, how some of that material gets into Coldwater Creek that you've heard about. And some material is dumped in the Westlake landfill that you've that you've heard about. And then, you know, uh, after Malacra basically contaminates this this plant downtown Dusterham because it was never designed for that kind of work in the first place, <laughs> they, they decide to build an, another plant out at Weldon Spring, and uh, they ultimately contaminate that plant too. Like all these plants, that I've you know I've, I've visited a number of sites around the country, and and that Weldon Spring site, they've I think that's since been completely cleaned. Uh, or they or they put they put all those boulders or rocks to maybe create that barrier. It's it's an con, interesting contain, containment site. Containment side. Containment <laughs> side. Okay. So they basically took all this. So essentially, what what they were doing, and 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 you know, back before there was an EPA or uh, you know a lot of rules of how you handle material, a lot of types of. To- uh-huh. toxic material you just went out to the woods and just dumped it down in a, in a yeah, hole or you it's know. like hey it's away from yeah. civilization it yeah, nobody matter. lives out there yeah, this is just dump it out there the army was already doing the army owned that land yeah. first they were doing it and they dumping. had a lot of lead from bullets yeah because i know when i was in the uh, naval reserve we would go train down there and so they saw that lead so you have all that in the land and yeah they didn't yeah, clean they any pr- of that up produce dnt uh uh TNT and DNT plants out there. They've thrown all those barrels down there. So Malincrack comes out and starts throwing their stuff down there. <laughs> it's and, already, yeah, yeah, it's already down there, you know. So, uh, you know, you know, Weldon was just like the most contaminated place in St. Louis. So, making this film, huge challenge. What I was, what I was trying to do, uh, first of all, I didn't want to make a film about just the workers, even though I think that was the most egregious thing because they knew those workers were getting sick. I know a lot of times people feel like, well, it's 1940s, nobody knew. You know, I talk to people all the time. They're like, what's your documentary about? Well, nobody knew. It's like, well, some people knew. <laughs> I mean, because if you think in, in terms of uh, Marie Curie, who uh, discovered radium and is coined the phrase radioactive, radioactivity, uh, you know, she died in 1934 uh, from her exposure to these radioactive materials and and she was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize and she was the first person man or woman to win it twice so she was an icon in the scientific community she was like just some nobody and you know she goes down in 34 it's like almost 10 years before Mellencroft even gets that contract so you know I need to guys working on the line had no idea and you'll see that in the film. And then what happens then? You say, Hey, is this is this stuff okay? And they're like, Oh yeah, that's fine. Well and, and we don't have the internet back then, so it's right. just like, okay, well my boss said it was fine, so I guess I'm okay. Yeah. I mean they um, basically ultimately uh have a health and safety guy show up, Mont Mason in 1947 like after you know if they've been working with the materials for five years and he's like hey guys you know we got some new rules now and you know you've been handling material with your hands you're really supposed to touch it with your hands uh, what? yeah 
And people were like looking at him like, what? Like shit, as what? he would describe himself later in an in a article as in a n- near panic. As, Where you been? We've been working with this material for five years. And so basically, uh, it, it's one thing for somebody to try to cut corners and say, hey, uh, I'm going to try to dump this material down in some place where, you know, I'm you know, thinking of it's, it's going to harm people. What it, it, it does and it's another thing to know that somebody is being contaminated and not telling them because essentially uh, one, one of the things that ends up happening is uh, there's a woman by the name of Denise Brock who is in this film. And one of the things I talk about in the film is this compensation program. It's the Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Program Act. That's a crazy title, but that's actually the title of, you know, this. <laughs> What's the acronym for that? <laughs> that's it, right? It's the E-O-I-C-P. <laughs> but um, this, the, the bottom line is this. The, the government never admits to killing its own people. I mean, it's just rare that they would do that. But basically, this, this compensation program is saying, hey, look, we messed up here. We killed some people, basically. And we're going to compensate you uh you know, if you you get through all these hoops, basically, it was a very it wasn't just like oh, just come on in here and we got a pile of money sitting over here in this corner. It you know you had to really go through a lot of paperwork, and so this one woman, Denise Brock, uh, who so many people have not even heard of, this woman's incredible. Um, when you see the film, you most people say, "How come I remember this woman? She should be her name should be all over the place." Essentially, she sees this program on television this compensation program. Her parents worked at Mallinckrodt. Her dad died of cancer. And she she says to her mom, you know, um, we should apply for this program and try to get compensation for you. And uh, so they attempt to do that. And the process is just so over the top. It's very, very challenging like right off the bat. Uh, they, you know, you, first of all, you're trying to get documents from the 1940s and 50s. Is people like they're initially told, "Oh, your dad didn't even work here." Well, obviously, he did, but you know, it, so there's this huge challenge to get compensation. So essentially, what the, what Denise Brock does is she files this Freedom of Information Act. You know, she files this FOIA to get information, and she gets these documents that had just been declassified. And there's all, just boxes and boxes and boxes from Mallinckrodt's work with the Atomic Energy Commission uh, and conversations uh, between Mont Mason, who was the health and safety guy, and this guy named Thomas Mancuso, who essentially gets a contract from the AEC because uh, basically they want to start going with nuclear power and they're like everybody's all freaked out and they're all scared you know why don't you go out and do this report to kind of settle people down everything's fine you know and this guy does the opposite he goes out and starts doing his report and he finds out everything's not fine this is really dangerous right (laughs) and so essentially Denise Brock digs through all these documents that are declassified between these conversations with these gentlemen and you know it'll be like her hacking the email of of the day or whatever. And she basically uses this information to take on this compensation program to say, Hey, look, uh, how are you going to basically 
Dose Reconstruct, my dad or anybody else that worked there. And that's what they're basically trying to do in this compensation program they're called Dose Reconstruction. And what they're what they're looking at is they're like, OK, let's try to get let's try to guess at how much contamination you might have had on your job. They don't know. You know, I mean, sometimes they can, you know, they have as much information as they can get. But what Denise Brock argued was your information is bad because these guys were covering up information on purpose because they knew guys were getting sick and they didn't want anybody to know about it. I found the paperwork for that. Bad for business. Bad for business. So Denise Brock's fight to change this program essentially affected workers across the entire country. And this program, just to give you an idea of the size of it, it's paid out over $14 billion dollars. It's paid out like $200 million in just the state of Missouri. But if you look at like Ohio, it's like a billion dollars. You know, a lot of plants over from the old Portsmouth, Ohio, uh, Portsmouth gases diffusion plant. Uh, And you got like Hanford's paid out over a billion. Los Alamos paid out a billion. Uh, Oak Ridge paid out two billion. So a lot of these places, these famous sites, they all, um, uh, had to jump through all these hoops, you know, before Denise Brock comes along and uh, makes it easier for her. Like, now, if people are still jumping through hoops, there's still issues with the program, but she made it a lot easier. Uh, and she's incredible. People talk about Aaron Brockovich, which she did a lot. Aaron Brockovich did some great work. But as Father Jerry Kleba says, who's in the film, he says, uh, Aaron Brockovich took on a private company. Denise Brock took on the United States government. And whooped them. <laughs> and so she's a, she, she's pretty incredible. But like I say, once again, so you can see how yeah. complicated the challenge of this story is. Number one, and yeah, make a film about nuclear workers. Most people say, "Well, I'm not a nuclear worker. I don't even know anybody who is." Click, you know, and you know, people kind of concerned about them. You know, what's affecting me in my world? It's it's only natural, not slamming people. It's just how it is, and so. With this story, there's all this contamination around St. Louis. And I would tell that story, too. And that way, because, you know, if you say, do you live in this area? That's a lot of people. You know, you live in North County. Yeah, I grew up in North County. You know, so now you've got attention from all these people. They get to learn about the workers and um, and about these different communities. Yeah. My dad was swimming in Coldwater Creek in like the 50s. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, it's exactly. So a lot of a lot of people. So many people, and so many people involved. And what I wanted to be able to, what I wanted to do was, there is so much history here. It's so complicated, and there's so much going on. There's what happened to these workers down, not only downtown, but at Weldon Spring, but at the cleanup at Weldon Spring, and the cleanup of these other places. Guys getting sick on the cleanup of these places, and that's just working. So it's like people are like, oh. I, Everything is great now. It's, it's it's not great now. Okay. Uh, and we'll talk about that too. But so trying to tell a story of workers and all of these different sites like Venice that you don't hear about, like, you know, what is that? You know, over, over in Illinois and some just being able to make something that people could sit down in less than two hours and get all this history. And understand it. And there was a lot in in the film. It was, the, it's kind of mind blowing. Thanks you, a lot. You know, a lot in there. It's very informative. I worked on it for five years, and I and I was packing. I was like, I don't know. Am I? 
I don't know if I'm going to do another documentary. This is the first documentary I've ever done. I was kind of hesitant to even do a documentary. First of all, because I've worked on other people's documentaries and you, you were in the business like me. You know how hard it is to do. And I was just like, man, did I want to take something like that on? But I would, meeting these people, I, I can't really even describe it, Ken. I mean, these people, it's like you're talking to your grandparents or something, welcome me into their house. Can I make you a sandwich? Let's give me some lemonade. You know, it's like, and they're telling you their stories and they're horrible stories, you know? And um, I remember interviewing this gentleman named Ed Patterson. He had worked at the hematite plant. He was a chemical, uh, chemical worker down there and uh, he had cancer. And I was still trying to learn this program. It's a very complicated program. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm I'm doing interviews with people, but I'm learning as I'm going. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's, that's part of the great thing about documentaries, to learn those things as you go. Yeah. And it's almost you're rewriting as you go because you'll get new information. And it's just a discovery process. Exactly. It's like a little po- – exactly. It's, it is you're discovery. You're investigative journalism. Exactly. You know, but it's in a, in a film – a medium. I, I totally agree, Ken. That's an excellent description. And so we arrive at this gentleman's house and he's uh, he sits down and we do an interview and some of it goes over my head because I don't know what he's talking about yet. And then we finished the interview and I remember him getting up from the table. He, we were in it, interviewed him in his kitchen and he walked over to his office and he, he comes back in. He's got all of these stacks and stacks documents and reports and stuff and he puts them down on the table he's looking down at him and he's he's just like i belong in this program the the compensation program they were denying him and he was spread out all these papers and he's talking about this cancer and he's talking about this and the kind of stuff that they did and i'm just i'm just looking at this man and he looks so frustrated you know he looks so upset and I didn't know what he was talking about at the time, but I knew he knew, you know, you just got that feeling. And I just felt like I want to help this man, you know, not only him, but these, he's just, it it was just worker after worker like that. I would meet these people and you know how you see a story in a paper, you read about something and you're like, oh, that's a horrible story. You don't really know that person, you know? It's different when you you spend time with people and you start making this connection with them. And I was kind of the thing with Denise Brock as she fights through this compensation program for her mom. She wins that part of it. She could have just stopped right there. But, you know, Denise, her dad got sick when she was a little girl. She never really knew him because he was battling for his life the whole time she was growing up. So she didn't really have the kind of relationship she wanted. She didn't know a lot about what he was doing down there. And so she was talking to workers. Hey, did you know my dad? Like, yeah, I knew your dad. He was a good man. This is what he did. And she makes this connection with these workers. And so she goes back for them and fights for them. And her fight for them changes workers across the country. And she's still doing it, basically. It's just... Basically, what ends up happening is the government says, this woman's kicking, you know, kicking butt. (laughs) We'll get her on our side and they hire her. She's basically she's the ombudsman for NIOSH, the National um, 
uh, Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And she still helps get workers compensated today. So she, the Department of Labor handles this program and uh, she coordinates with them. And, you know, somebody gets denied. She kind of goes through there and says, ah, oh, you know, better look again because right here, you know, she, and they're like, oh, okay, that's huge. So it, these workers and these people, they went to work every day to protect this country and we didn't protect them. We didn't do what we needed to do to protect these people. They're patriotic. They love this country. They don't regret protecting it. They regret getting sick. They don't like that aspect. So this program, when they apply for it, if they get compensated, it's like the government saying, I'm sorry, I did this to you. If they get rejected, it's a slap in the face to them. It's horrible. So there's all these people out there tens of thousands of them who after suffering because you, know, you get cancer you know it drains your funds and you know if you can get into this program you get you know you get this white card that helps you with your bills and everything and uh, it's a big deal so uh, one of the things I wanted to do it, it, is I wanted people to know about this program, first of all, because if people don't know, first of all, when I go through cities, I've been in 23 cities with this film, people show up, they have no idea what this program is. And they're workers and they qualify for it. And they're like, you know what, I think I qualify. We'll go ahead and put, let's fill out some paperwork. <laughs> Often you don't know the programs that you're, I mean, there's so much information out there. And with the internet, there's a lot more. You can right. find it a lot easier. But uh, a lot of times we don't know what what's available. Exactly. Um, this one, my, when my father was going through cancer, he was looking at, I mean, he didn't know certain programs, so he could have filed for certain disability, I mean, years ago. Yeah. But he just didn't know. And then this time, I guess with a little more knowledge, he went in, because uh, he was he had a lot of uh, asbestos exposure when he was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, lung cancer and this and that, so it's yeah, being right. looked into. But, uh, yeah, you just don't know about all, all these programs, because we don't think about it. We go to work, we do our thing. Exactly. And, uh, you know, at that point, it just wasn't as readily available or the information as as in your film wasn't readily available. Right. Um, and, you know, so it says the more of these films we watch, the more we things we read that are, are more substantial and not just, um, you know, news on the Kardashians. Right. I, I mean, exactly. we learn and then we can share that. And the more as a community that we talk to one another. Uh, that, that's just information we can share so we're, we're looking after each other that's why I love, that's why I like this podcast format and talking with you maybe somebody listens to this that didn't know or their parent or, or whatnot and then, and then they'll go watch the documentary and get even more information so it's all yeah. synergistic yeah and is it you know it's I didn't want people to watch the film and go screaming out of the theater in a panic I'm not trying to panic people I want people to educate people about the history I want people to be outraged because it's outrageous what's going on. But I want people to, to, to move to action on waste and on these workers. So as far as on waste, it, it, people are just being, it, big companies, they're just being reckless. You know, they're trying to cut corners. And you'll see in the film uh, Honeywell, a plant down in Metropolis. Oh, no, I use that because I didn't want to like I didn't want to just do a film about the oh look they're just dumping waste in the 40s and the 50s but everything's fantastic now mm-hmm. 
uh, I wanted to look at a plant that was, you know, up and running at the time uh, more recently and how they handled their material and how they handle workers. And, uh, you know, yeah, you do have the Internet now and people are working a little bit safer now. But as you'll see in the film, they kind of intimidate people on the job, you know, where somebody, you know, there's an example of uh, a, a manager saying, hey, you make sure guys clock out before they start talking about safety on the job. Well, why? That <laughs> you know, insane. That's insane, right? You know, it's like. What do you mean? Uh, it should the attitude should be, oh, is there a problem with safety here? Let's make sure that's let's make sure that that's uh, fixed. I, I went out and I screened the film uh, out near Hanford uh, in Washington, and they got uh, tanks out there in the ground that the contamination in that they were supposed to be out there temporarily, but now they've been out there for decades. And they're like, oh, yeah, these are leaking. We got to get these things out of the ground. And they hired all these young guys who, you know, some of them don't know anything about that history. They're just like, oh, it's a job, pays a lot of money. That's how they get you in. All these jobs pay a lot of money. And uh, so you know, all these young guys are getting sick out there. So I interviewed one of them, not in the film, but just, it's just when I was talking to him. And I said, uh, you know, it's, it's 2016. I mean, so it was, at the time, it was 2016 when I was there. I said, guys, they weren't their half stuff out here. Why can't they have their stuff on out here? And he, he, he looked at me and he said, Tony, if you start putting on your gear out here, somebody's going to come to you and say, oh, is there, a, is there a problem out here? Do you not feel safe? Let's get you over there, over there. So, you know, you'll feel a little safe and you're not going to make as much money. Don't put you in a spot and you cut your hours back. And so these guys are like, you know, I kind of need to get paid. Now, what Metropolis, one of the stories I usually tell people about is, uh, you know, I basically why I go to Metropolis in the first place is I'm, I see a story in the paper and it's got all these crosses in front of this Honeywell plant. And I'm like, what's going on down there? And so I start reading the story. And it there was a it was a lockout, okay, because the, their union was was um, trying to fight for health care benefits because they all well, these guys are getting sick they're all getting cancer right and they're saying hey you know we need to and they didn't want to you know they weren't they were meeting with the union on this and so they locked them all out so these workers were outside and they had put all these crosses out and essentially a large cross represented a person who had died of cancer and a small cross represented a person that was fighting. Fighting, battling cancer. And there were way too many crosses out there. So we drive down there. Workers, they're out on the line. And, you know, we're talking to them. You know, really know us from Adam. So they're like, you know, you really need to talk to the union before. <laughs> we're having a... So I was like, okay. They're like, the hall's right down the street. And so we drive down there and uh, we talk to uh, the president of the union. And he says, um, you guys seem like some decent guys. Um, but we don't know you, you know. So here's what we'll do: we have a big meeting uh, this evening. You could come down here and uh, you tell our membership what you plan on doing, and then uh, we'll decide. We'll participate. And it's so convenient that the meeting was at night. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, they want as many people to be able to come to there. I tell yeah. you, it was packed because the plant's locked out. So yeah. There's nothing yeah. to do in so this good, town good. except to. 
um, yeah, it was. You know, because you could have been go, go down there and then be way okay. Our next meeting is next month. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And then you don't go back and I, you miss that story. Right. You miss that story. And so, um, I'm 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 setting up all my gear in the hall because I'm figuring, well, we'll probably be able to do some interviews. You know, I'm a union guy myself, and you know, they all understand once I make when I explain what I'm doing. And so. I had like a microphone set up on the C stand and you know, it, you and I are in the business C stand use is used to like support like a, a boom microphone or a light. You can use it for a lot of different stuff. Reflectors. Yeah, it's one of those universal tools. Yes. It's a universal it's tool. It's a great tool. And so this worker walks up to me and he, and he looks at the stand and he points at it and he says, C stand century stand. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm like, I give him this look and he, and he looks at me and he says, uh, you're wondering how I know what that is. And I'm like, I'm thinking, was that a nuclear worker in the middle of Metropolis, Illinois? Yeah. Kind of wondering. He says, I'm from Hollywood. I used to do the same kind of work that you're doing. Got divorced from my wife. She lives down here. I don't want to die in that plant but I want to be by my daughter. I stories like that. You know, he didn't say that on camera, but that man shouldn't have to make that choice. All those workers knew how contaminated that plant was. It pays a lot of money. There's not a lot of jobs around there that can pay that kind of money. They're kind of hoping, I hope it's safe. I'm doing the best I can. You roll the dice and take the chance. Maybe, yeah. you know, what? what's worse? We look at it. Hey, I'm stressed out right now. I can't pay my bills. I can't, uh, I don't have health care for my child. I can't feed my child. Right. So, all right, let me take the chance and, and hope for the best. Right. Right. And so, and, and so that's, that's, uh, that's what's going on now. You know, that's, that's what we're doing, dealing with now. Now, they also... You know, we talk about here the waste here dumped over in the landfill, uh, dumped down in the core at Walden. Okay, so we do have an EPA now. We do have regu- re- regulations now. You're not really supposed to be dumping. And a lot of times, what's happening, and in the case with Honeywell, is they have a lot of property. You know, that's a billion dollar corporation, right? And so they had all of this material just sitting out there. And just dis- disintegrating in these big cans, similar to what happened at Weldon, you know. <laughs> but it was like instead of hauling this stuff away, which costs a whole cost a lot of money, they're just letting it sit out there. And how you, how's anybody gonna know it's out there? That's a private company. You can't just walk out there and say, hey, "What's going on out here?" You know what I mean? The only people who knew what was out there was the workers. And finally, the EPA raid that plant and come in there and say clean it up you know mm-hmm. you know so basically you know the the government they hold you to your word in the contract that's all you know if you say you're so i'm gonna have x amount of material on my property they give you a contract that says okay you're allowed to have that on your property and then you go just extending way past that because it costs you too much money to haul stuff out they're like, that's not what we agreed to. You shouldn't have this, this much material out here. You got to pay a fine for them. 
paying a fine of $11 million. Yeah. I don't want to say it's pocket change. Yeah, but they just keep on doing it. It's a lot less. Their profit margin is still still on a high enough level. But that's the same same thing with uh, coal ash. I I heard a story somewhere the other day, probably NPR, and um, maybe it was fresh air. But with, with that, they were talking about how a lot of these coal ash ponds just were never lined. Mm. So eventually, where does that water go and where do those materials go? You know, they seep through the ground and then they go into the groundwater, which is water that we drink. Right. And so eventually, and and, and that's the thing, you know, people look at, you know, I have a hard time. You know, people look at regulations as, well, that's going to hurt business and that's going to hurt jobs. But if we ultimately hurt the environment or you have to clean that up and spend all this money, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things that in the long run, it, it may not cost them money when when there is no penalties or, right. you know, we have an administration that is just cutting all these regulations. Right. And it's just it's really scary because we have one planet. And once that's in the groundwater, how do you clean that up? Exactly. That was one of the main oh, things maybe, I was trying. Future jobs or science. We'll figure it out later. But yeah, I don't know. That's man. That's too much of a gamble. And yeah, exactly. I don't know, man. That's that's going to be the thing that I think extincts us at one point. That, the human race. That's it, one of the things that I really wanted to get across in this film was stop people from dumping stuff before they dump it. Yeah. make huge penalties for people for for doing that because it's a big deal it's like some company says hey i'll handle that material for you and then they take it across the street and they dump it someplace and you're like wait a minute and, and they then, dump it in the landfill and dump it in the landfill you know, like, okay. and, and, and nobody's they, gonna know nobody's yeah and, and it's then, just like <laughs> until and, they and, do until they know and then we were all having to pay for it yeah. you know and uh it's it's irresponsible and uh it doesn't have to be that way and and because you know They'll come in and try to clean these sites up. It, it, they clean up as much as they can. Well, then there's still, you know, you could go out and look at the reports that I have in the film. The material, it's, it's probably going to be out there for a thousand years of yeah, that point. Hopefully, because I, I helped a friend on a video shoot. He had like a futuristic scene, and so we were up on those rocks. And oh, that's yeah. why I was thinking like, okay, this is, this is all cleaned up and we're good. But, you know, hopefully it's contained enough where... Uh, people that are hiking and, and doing that aren't getting contaminated. Or yeah, anything. you can hike and, and bike out there. Yeah. You just can't live out there. You start digging. <laughs> you know, you start digging down in the ground. You're gonna yeah. hit the material. You know, but one thing I uh, story I, I always like to tell. Um, you know, I, I visited Fernald. You know, which is was the sister plant of Walden, and uh, you know, Fernald. Uh, gets completely contaminated, and I think it's over four million dollars to clean. The one it's like a, it was like a record cleanup at the time. It was like it was, and so they have a containment cell. Also, it looks very much like um, like uh, welded, uh, except theirs is covered. They covered theirs with dirt and grass and stuff. So it actually looks like a uh, just like a hill. You know, you can't because I was I was looking out the window. I said, "Where's your where's your cell?" And she says, "Right there." I was like, right where? Right there. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh. And so I said, well, I want to go out and take a look. She says, okay. Uh, the person that worked there, because they have like a like a little museum too. Like uh, they call it an interpretive center at Walden Spring. It's like a little museum. And they have a little museum at, at Fernald. And she says, yeah, okay, go on out there. Stick to the path, though. We're still finding hot spots out there. Oh, my God. I'm like, what? You know, so, but, uh. so I go out there. 
And I'm trying to get to that cell because I want to kind of compare it to our cell. Just, and so know. did you have some kind of uh, measuring device or anything? No, or? I just wanted to uh, <laughs> I just wanted to look at it, you know. And so I, you know, I get to it's all fenced off. It has got like all the, you know, radioactive signs all over it. And so uh, the woman and a couple of people, they drive out in these like little trucks. And I say, uh, oh, uh, I noticed that your cell is completely fenced off. Uh, not the case at St. Louis. Well, then people, you know, are, are up on top of the cell. And she just looked at me and she said, we don't want people on top of our cell. It's almost like they looked at that and like, we're not going to make that mistake. You yeah. know, it was like, yeah. like, now this is how we're doing it now or whatever. I don't know. But, yeah. um, you know, I've yeah. always found that fascinating. So when did you... Um when did you first discover that you wanted to tell this story? What was the catalyst? The ca- actually, it started over in Illinois. I didn't know anything about Malincrot in St. Louis. I think I heard, you know, I've heard of that name, pharmaceutical stuff, stuff, but I didn't know anything about their connection to World War II and the bomb or anything like that. And by the way, nobody does. I travel all over the country. And if I go to Los Alamos, nobody's heard of it. I go to like uh, Hanford, nobody's. And I'm going into museums where people like do do tours and they know this stuff inside and out. And they know World War II inside and out. They don't know our story. Nobody does. But um, I, I met these workers over at the former Dow plant that's in Venice, Illinois, which you'll see in the film. There were three workers. They all were about the same age. Uh, they all worked in the same plant doing the same thing. One of them had been compensated through this program that I had never heard of this energy employees, occupational illness compensation program act. The other two hadn't. And the, the two who hadn't were like, why not me? I have cancer just like him. I should be compensated at the, and I'm like, I don't know why not you. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I never heard of this program before. And what are you doing working with radioactive material? That looks like a, a steel mill to me, you know? And, uh, they were the well, we were subcontractors for Malincrat. And I was like, well, what was Malincrat? What are they doing? <laughs> you know? And so it was just start peeling back the onion. And so, so I started yeah. looking at Malincrat. And once I started learning the history of Malincrat, I was like, wow, that's a crazy story over there. And that, of course, once you start talking about Malincrat, you eventually, the name Denise Brock comes up. And once I met her, okay. all was just, went, you know. And so, and then, of course, we learned about Weldon and, uh, the whole thing just, it just got so big. And like I say, sure. it was, it took me five years to make this film. I want to make sure that, um, you know, I did my due diligence on it. You know, sure. if, you, if you get anything wrong, people are like, yeah, yeah, ah, yeah. you said it, it was. There was a whole thing. Yeah, down the toilet. yeah. He didn't know. He, he, he said it was sunny and it was partly cloudy. So it's a disaster, you know. So Yeah, you're under, you know, I, I think you can be under a magnifying glass when you're, when you're doing that and you're saying something you're making that statement to make change that one false right. thing, especially in this day and age. And it's oh, just yeah. like, that's fake news. Yeah, exactly. Or whatever the term would be for yeah. documentaries, but it's right. Just, and there's a lot of information, but what, what brought you to Venice in the first place? Was it for this project or was it something else? No, there, there was a story about, uh, about those workers and people that lived in that area. Cause there's, there's residents over there too. Okay. And so I was basically that plant is literally in mm-hmm. their backyard. And you're looking, 
you know, they ultimately started dumping material in, you know, out in these last because once again, they owned all this property sure. out there. And it's like, this is my private property. I could start dumping this material yeah. out here. And that's what they were doing. And so, uh, so there's, there was the story of these. And by the way, Venice is kind of you know, poor, super, not the most affluent area. Okay. It was one of the reasons why plants move into areas like that. I mean, if that plant doesn't make it in Ladue or Clayton, you know, so that people would have been out there saying, hey, what's going on here? Or, oh, no. Or, you know, but um, that plant or at was the doing- time it's on the outskirts, you know, at that yeah. time, that's that's the country basically. Yeah. So nobody's out there. And then now we have all this urban sprawl. And, well, and it's, then it's just, then it becomes more of a problem. Yeah, but that in, in, in that area, those people, uh, you know, they were homes around that. Oh, plant. so they so, went there to ask for as the job of the town was built for the plant for those jobs. In well, there there were a lot. I, there were a lot of like homes around. You know, there's a number of plants over okay, in Grand gotcha. City Steel and stuff is over there. It's not. It's you know a little distance from it, but it's over there. Uh, but there was a lot of people that live around this plant while this plant is pumping out material out of the smokestack well back then you, you didn't have to put any any meters on your smokestack gotcha. just blast it out of there yeah you no know filters or, yeah, or whatnot just, none just of the modern it, technology that just put it out whatever and then it's stuff spreading all of these people's houses and stuff in their their gardens and and, and it's as far as just uh this is my property i'm gonna pour this material down the drain the only reason we know about that is because the workers who said yeah we're pouring stuff down the drain out here or pouring stuff over there this is feels like this is a private company. I don't have to tell you anything. This is my personal business on my personal property on my private company's property land or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, that's always been a that's been a challenge. I know people hammer the government. I mean, the government looks bad in my film, but they look good at the same time in certain ways because you have to take into consideration if I couldn't have done this film without the government's help. Everything that you see in my film are government documents. They're either reports, the EPA, Department of Energy, Atomic Energy Commission, or they're, they're memos, they're letters that people are talking back and forth. The only thing I type on the screen is like someone's name and their job title. Everything else is their information. So there's never been, you know, I've had the Department of Energy, the Department of Labor, I've had EPA, all of these guys purchase the film and they, you know, look at the film and these guys never are like, hey, we got a problem with this report. It was like, your report, dude. <laughs> so nobody's got a problem with the reports because it's their reports. But um, I tried to stick to, you know, they, their information and they make it available. But in situations where a private company hires a private company to do a cleanup on their private property, that doesn't have to be available to you. This is my property. It's none of your business what I'm doing over here. And uh, unless it just, unless it just, um, it's a situation where, you know, so, a worker, you know, says, oh, did you know what they're doing over here? They're doing, <laughs> you know, that the government finds out about it or whatever, but they're trying to do a lot of stuff. So uh, the bottom line is, and even with Denise Brock's situation, she files that FOIA, um, the government declassified all those documents and gave them to her. That's what she uses to basically beat the government over the head with, you know, like their own documents. And so, you know, I came across, you have this mix, okay? You have the government who hires private companies to do work. And 
you can make the argument, hey, you need to be supervising people better. Get on top of it or whatever. But at the same time, if you're a private company, you need to be doing your due diligence. If somebody's supposed to be wearing a dissimilar badge, make sure they're wearing it. And by all means, don't take it and throw it in the trash can when the government leaves. It's not that hard. It's fun. Somebody, you know, one of the stories that that gentleman at Patterson, I tell you about that. Unfortunately, that gentleman passed away before I complete this film, which really upset me. Um, he told me a story that he says he says guys didn't believe that they were really testing those badges. They just didn't believe it. They're like, "Are you really are you really doing your due diligence on my badge?" So he said they would heat their badges up purposely and then send them in. Just to see what kind of reaction. What kind of reaction that they would say, oh, I'm sorry, because, you know, if your badge is too hot, you have to stay out of the plan for a certain amount of time. They call it, you know, you Uh cooling down. They would just hand the badge right back to you. You're good to go. Now, that's horrible. Okay. See what I said now? And they know, like, no, I'm not good to go because even though. I heated the badge up myself. I know know I'm not good to go. So now I, you know, this is a a sham out here. And see, he told me that story. And I said, that's a horrible story. And then as I've been traveling around the country, I've heard that story in multiple places. So how many wow. times? I don't have any idea how many places that's happened. But other guys got the same idea. Are they testing my badge? Let's find out. And they heat it up. And they're like, here you go. Here's your badge back. So that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, the, and that, that just shows that regulations are there for a reason. And the government's job is to, you know, is to protect its citizens. Yeah. So that's something. And and unfortunately, you know, people have the argument that business will regulate itself. And I'm sure there's a lot of good businesses that do. But then you have others that uh, that bottom line is more important. They're just like, well, that person's only going to be here for this long and or it's a lot less money. They right. think, oh, you know, it'd be a lot less money if we have to pay them out. But, you know, they're once again rolling the dice and seeing. Yeah, it's, and, just, and, and that's, I, it's unconscionable. It is. That's part of what Denise Brock finds out. In those in those conversations, in those letters, it's basically, hey, we're not going to do a report on what happened down here with these workers because, at un, under the advice of attorney, and the fact that they write that it's it's there in a document somewhere, it's yeah. So when yeah. You, that was you know, look, yeah. that was when when I came across when she gave me those documents, she was showing me and yeah. she was explaining me. That's the first thing I the first question I had was, why is this document? Why does it exist? You know, why is he having this kind? Why is well, Mount Mason having yeah. this conversation with Mancuso? And, and, and is Mount Crowd okay with him telling all this information? Hey, this is what we've been doing out here, dude. You're going to be. See, well, of course, they don't expect that document to get out, just like emails. They expect it to just get like, out. Okay, I'm going to send Tony West an email. Here's our business. Hey, Tony, we're not going to check these and we'll keep our and, and we'll keep this amount of money and we'll keep our stocks up and yada, yada. They expected to. I, I agree. They expected to get out, but at the same time, what my conclusion to it was, was that Mott Mason knew that Mancuso had access to everybody's information because the Atomic Energy Commission had given them that contract uh-huh. to go around and do this research. And so in his letters to him, he basically says, hey, 
you're going to be coming across some things. And when you get to our, you know, our yeah, records gotcha. that, you know, aren't really up, you know, up yeah. to snuff. But we're making our quota. We're getting you the. Uh, yeah, you know, basically, basically, maybe you want to put this information about us in a more favorable light or maybe don't even put it in your report. So he was trying <laughs> yeah. to get out ahead of that story. It's sure. like, look, dude. Don't make, don't burn us on this thing, you know. It, it, so that that's why I, gotcha. I feel like he was having the conversation, <laughs> and then she has access to those letters, and so it's good. And that's Freedom of Information Act, all those yeah. kind of things. That's why we need that. That's why we need it. That's why we need it. It's like it's, I give you another. I give you another example. Like when when I went to Weldon, um, you know the the name of the film, the the safe side of the fence, because a fence keeps coming up. You know, it's like. It, and it's it's just ridiculous. Like, well, the material's on that side of the fence, and we're you're all good on that the other side of the fence. Well, no, you're not because the, you know the material can obviously blow through yeah. the fence, over the fence, yeah. get in the groundwater, go under the fence. It's like it's just a it sounds like a wall. Yeah, that, that fence is a wall, but yeah. it's great, and I love your artwork. It's a chain link fence, and you have all the signage and everything. And it's I just got, like, what's I got to tell that story. I got to tell that story. It's okay. So that artwork is from a, a woman by the name of Delaney blaze, who is from California and her father, uh, worked at a plant out there, uh, in California, Santa Susana, I think was the, 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 the plant and her father got sick. And uh, she was trying to get compensation for her father. She was kind of like the Denise Brock of California in the sense that she was trying to work with her father and the other workers. And basically, I met her early on when I was doing the film. And she was just very positive and very supportive of the film. She was like, nobody's talking about this this topic. I can't believe you're making a film about it. And so once I got the film completed, I contacted her and I said, Delaney, I got the film done, you know, and I'm going to be traveling with the film. Blah, blah, blah. I need to make a poster or something like that. And she's, and she said, uh, well, if you ever need somebody, if you ever need a graphic artist with a big heart for nuclear workers, let me know. I said, Oh, do you know somebody? <laughs> and she was like me, Tony, me. And it's, I forgot that she was a graphic artist yeah. because her life has been committed to helping these workers. And so when you see the poster, um, basically the barbed wire, the barbed wire represents the stripes in the flag in the workers, uh, which is Chris and Evelyn Davis, Denise Brock's parents that are up in the corner represent the stars. And, uh, it's a beautiful poster. It's an amazing poster. She's an incredible person. Um, it's super positive lady. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been, it's been that kind of journey for me. I've met all these amazing people, and it, um, the film really what it, it what makes the film is is not me, you know. It's just, it's them. It's all these people and their stories. They're incredible people, and you know when, when I, I when I debuted the film in in the, at the Tivoli um, at the film uh, St. Louis Filmmakers Showcase. My dad, my dad, my mom were there, and my my dad said to me, "Son, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that you did. You did an amazing job on the film, but you were blessed with some amazing people." And I said, "You know, you're right. It's those people. You know, it's just mm-hmm. when I would talk to them, it's like, you know, all, the hardest part for me 
with this film was what do I cut out? I could set Denise Brock up there for three hours. People to watch that. I mean, she did everything she was saying. Uh, Kat Logan Smith, a brilliant woman. She's unbelievable. Like, it's like, I'm sitting there talking to her. And I was like, my God, I could say, I want to use everything that she's saying, you know, like I can't, you know, but you can't, you know, it's like, you can only use some of what she's saying. So it's like, you, yeah, definitely. I look at uh, documentary filmmaking. It's it's like you have that piece of granite, and you have all this material that granite's a material, and you're chipping away. So it's like sculpting. Yeah. And so you have to chip away, and it's it's a less is more type situation, yeah. where what you get rid of will eventually uh, allow that finished piece, that finished sculpture, to to reveal itself. So it's yes. a kind of all in there. It is. But you just as an artist have to find it. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing. So it, it's just like you throw this chunk of material and, chip, 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 and just constantly whittle it down until you have your final product. I agree with you. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's it's interesting. It's you you look at it and you say, first of all, too, looking at this top when I'm trying to at the very beginning of the single course, you know, okay, you got the history, you got the science, you know, you've you know, it, it, it's just. It, you get this confusing government program. Who makes a film about a government program? You know what I mean? It's like, is this going to bore people to tears? Are people even going to understand what this thing is about? And you know what? Everybody gets it. And that was what I was really happy about. But one of the reasons everybody gets it is because the people in the film do a great job mm-hmm. yeah, explaining the what they're talking centerpiece. about. Yeah, the people are centerpiece. Otherwise, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. They explain Interesting. it. Interesting. You know? And I even have teenagers watch the film because I'm like, well, it's, you know, it's going to do well with teenagers, not Batman, you know? But they like it. They get it. Interesting. And when you, and when growing up, cause you mentioned, I met your mom at one of the screenings. Yeah. Which is, she's an amazing woman. Thank you. Growing up was, were social issues something that were prevalent in your life? Is that something that led to this or is this something older in life? You realize that like, these are important. Let me take my skills that I've learned with sports and everything and put it into this venture. Um, basically my parents were the kind of people who were, always helping other people. They didn't say to you, hey, you should get out there and help other people. They just did it. And then you, we, my brother and I would just watch them do it. I remember one day I was sitting in the house. It was snowing. We had a whole bunch of snow. And uh, it, was, it was a Sunday or something. Football game was on. Me and my dad were sitting there. And people kept getting stuck, like right in front of our house, you know. <laughs> and my dad would just get up and go out and push the car out. And come back in and watch the game. Somebody else would He'd go out and he push the next car out. He just, just, he just, <laughs> you know that he didn't say, "Hey, you know, in life, when someone needs help, you get out there." He just would just be doing stuff, and my mom would be doing stuff like that. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of they, you know, as kids, you just kind of look at you look up to your parents, and you know, they were always, um, they were always doing that kind of stuff, and they were always supportive. You know, my brother Marlon is a is a. Um, uh, in, uh, special effects animator for Walt Disney. You know, he'd been on Frozen, Moana, all this stuff. And he, he's two years ahead of me. And he used to make films as he, when he was like, when he was 11 years old, he asked my parents to get him a film camera. And they did. And so that's kind of how I got into the production aspect because I was kind of like his little assistant. Nice. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, my, story, my parents were supportive about that. My parents didn't know anything about film or television, you know, or, or if you could be successful, but they were like, hey, you know, live in the greatest country in the world. So you want to work hard, you hit the books, we'll pay for your college. Uh, 
do it, you know? <laughs> and so that's what we did. So yeah, they were they were super supportive and um you know, I'm African American. Uh they didn't talk a ton about racism. Um, because I don't think they wanted us to be able to like kick back on that and say, Well, there's people being racist to me, Dad. That's why I can't get there, you know. They understood that, of course, because they went through way more racism than we did. But what African Americans of that generation did was like work extremely hard to give you a position, so hopefully you wouldn't have to walk the line that they had to walk. You know, um, I re- I did a commercial uh, in Alabama, and. I was very close to the uh, that Pettis Ed, the Edmund Pettus Bridge that uh, King and those guys went across, and I said to the producer, "I said, should we go down there and walk across? Let's, let's go down there and walk across that bridge, you know?" And she said, "Yeah, let's do that." It so I didn't know too much about Selma except for what I saw in the history books and stuff. I thought I assumed it was a bigger town. It is not a very extremely small town, and I also assumed that there was an interstate. That would take you down there. We you know you just punch it in the phone. And the Pettus Bridge, you know, it was like, it was, you know, and it's like, turn right, turn left here. And we're like, turn left here. This is a two lane road. <laughs> it was like a scary, tiny road. There were like no lights, there were like no gas stations. You could see like little homes sitting back way in the background. And you're like, oh my God. So I'm trying to think of imagine decades ago going down that road. Like you're somebody in New York and you see Dr. King on the news. You're like, I'm going to go down to Selma and help Dr. King get across that bridge. How scary that trip would have been. And when I got on that bridge, it is an extremely scary bridge. It is very, very high. It's not that wide. And as you start walking across that bridge, before you even get to the water, the the land part is extremely high. And you look to your right, you're looking at the tops of tree, uh, the treetops. That's how high you are before you even get to the center of that bridge. So it's like somebody got in their car, black and white people, drove this scary road to Selma, got out of their car and walked across this extremely scary bridge with people with baseball bats on the other side waiting to beat the hell out of you. And I'm going to still walk across this bridge where does that type of courage come from? I don't know. But those people did it. And so people could vote, you know, there's like, hey, there people aren't being able. That's why they were there. People aren't being allowed to vote down there. And so I tell you what, my parents, if they, if they the one thing they did say is you vote in every election, every single year. I don't care if it's off your election, whatever you get out there. <laughs> you see what these people did. Yeah, no doubt. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> what was on a lighter note what was that project we were working on was it something for the dome where we going across the Martin Luther King Bridge from Illinois into St. Louis and I was in my I had that little uh, uh, like Dodge Neon and you were you had the camera and it was one of the big beta cameras at the time yes. and you were like out of the sunroof you had yes. the feet in the passenger seat and just like we did a couple of passes and you were, had that camera and we were shooting the dome or something, yeah. capturing that out of my sunroof. 
This is <laughs> like, was a good time. it was a great time, you know. It was a great time. Like the technology and yeah. everything has, you know, has really changed. You know, it was a big, ginormous camera yeah. I had then. Yeah. You know, it's, now we would mount some GoPro yeah, on exactly. there, and it would be, it would be. The you know, high definition yeah. 4K versus that thing that I had, which was SD, yeah. and it was ten times as big. I think it was a project on the dome, and they were talking about the roof. How if there's an earthquake, it'll it'll just kind of slip off and it won't cave in. And yeah. yeah, that was fun. <laughs> you know, you you learn some things on these on these projects. What you know, a couple of uh, I mean, it's it's fascinating your film and everything you did, and you know, being immersed in a subject like that. I mean, this is, uh, this is something that it, it appears, I mean, has just become a big part of your life. It has, you know, cause I started off working in network news. I used to do ABC, you know, NBC, mm-hmm. CBS. I did, you know, news was kind of depressing me because one, it's like, you know, you had to go cover something negative. Oh, a disaster just happened. Need you out there. Uh, and you had just be ready on call to do that. And it was depressing me. It wasn't, um, you know, some guys, they just thrive on, they're on the, like, on the edge, we're going to exist, look mm-hmm. at this, you know. I was never really, really like that. You know, I would get someplace and I would be upset about the story. And so I kind of drifted off into sports uh, because I like sports growing up. Sports plays good. People just want to sit around and watch games on TV. It's low. Um, they want to escape mm-hmm. and watch sports. And there's a yeah. ton of it out there. And, good uh, living, for sure. Yeah, it's a good living. It's a good living. I kind of miss the journalism uh-huh. aspect, though. And I just kind of felt like, you know, how much of an impact am I making on society? It's a, it, sports, I'm not taking anything away from it. Sports are important. Entertainment's important. You do need a break. You do need a time. Mm-hmm. Everything can be all serious. You need a time to... Sure. So it does. It serves a purpose. But I was, there was something missing for me. And uh, when this topic came along, I was like, I think I want to do this. You know, I'm going to continue to do my sports and, and do my regular job and my TV commercials and stuff that I do to pay the bills because this thing gonna pay the bills. You're just doing it because you want to make a difference mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, it, uh, you know, so that was the other thing that was weird because, you know, people were looking at me like, you're a television cameraman on the football game. What do you know about nuclear? Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just like, I don't know. You know, I'm learning. You know, <laughs> it's like, I have to. I have to learn, you know, and uh, I have to finish the project. I have to immerse my yeah, in totally my, immerse yourself in the subject, yeah, yeah. because it, with it, the people, yeah, because you just people. I can't even tell you if you haven't done it how I mean, discouraging people from doing films, but how challenging it is. And we were talking about this earlier. The price of equipment has has dropped dramatically. When I got out of college, you know, a camera costs you know thirty four thousand dollars, and that's all you had was just a camera. You mm-hmm. had to buy a lens that yeah, cost yeah. fifteen thousand dollars. You had to buy a tripod. You know, you know now yeah, you're looking at hundred k. Yeah, or, not you, even HD back then. Not even HD back then. Okay, so it really limited. You know, very few people could get into the game. If you got into it, you were working for somebody else who had that gear, and uh, you weren't out there buying a whole bunch of stuff. But now cameras are very, very expensive. And so a lot of people have a camera. A lot of people are making documentaries. It used to be uh, you could go and try to get a grant and apply. And there's, you know, you were a handful of people trying to, you know, uh, apply for that grant. Now it's like a gazillion people. You're just like a needle in a haystack. Same thing with the film festival. It used to be, hey, I'm going to try to get into this film festival, kind of drum up some information over some, some publicity for my film. 
dude, they literally get thousands of people for every film festival now. And it's like, your film may be fantastic, but it's like, you know what? We got like a thousand films over here that's also fantastic, dude. So, you know, flip a coin and see if you get it. And it's catching them at the right time when they're... Yeah, yeah. You know, when their attention is, is really focused. Um, right. You but get too late, they've already looked at a thousand of those films. So you exactly. may have a have a great one and then they're just like all right i'm burnt out i can't watch another i can't watch another or and they don't understand this was it is hilarious because like i would i would uh, i would apply for festivals and areas and it's like dude there's you've, you've got fifteen thousand nuclear workers in your <laughs> i think they'll come out and watch the film you know mm-hmm. but they don't know the history so they're just like oh whatever but, but it's good about? you as a filmmaker doing that research and then pitch, yeah. pitching that and hey here's why this film should be here because there is an audience and it's great to get this information out to that audience true and then and and the upside well, the upside, of course, of equipment being more affordable is like it's more affordable. Like, mm-hmm. Even I have two cameras now, yeah. you know, and I do it my film with all my gear. But uh, and also social media. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that. You could get on. It used to be. And we think we talked about this, too. Like you had to get through the gatekeepers before you if you made a film, uh, you, you want people to see it. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, you got to get this distribution and those were gatekeepers you know and so if they if first of all you had to get into all these film festivals to let so to let the distributor know that you even have a film and you gotta win them or do well in them so that they even pay attention to your film and then hopefully they make you off or whatever and now man you take your film right to the public you can four wall what they call four wall where you basically um uh just rent the theater. It's it, it, it's a gamble, but uh, you get on social media and tell everybody, "Hey, here's my film," and you know you got the YouTube, you got Vimeo and stuff, so you, people can see your trailer, and you could drum up a lot of information just on your own like that. You know, um, so it, it it's you're able to do things now that you couldn't do before. You can. If you if you got talent, you got a good product that people like. You could tell you go straight to the public with it now, and uh, you know make a difference. So that part of it is very 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 cool. Yeah. And there's a lot of outlets for you now. Uh-huh. You know you know I think me and you started. It wasn't no Netflix or Amazon Prime and stuff like that. You no, had to get in the theater. And then as far as um, you know, just going into a lot of these theaters now. Of course, the challenge you know industry stuff this is industry talking here now um there if you if you're dealing with a mom and pop it's awesome you're trying to go into some city and it's like you're talking directly to the owner and the the conversation goes like this uh what day are you looking at wednesday what time seven o'clock okay see you then <laughs> that's the conversation well so you're looking at some giant uh conglomerate or like the theater chain that yeah is, regal or yeah. carmike they're like the yeah, two marcus biggest. which is marcus warenberg yeah it's a warenberg before it was marcus they were awesome they let me show my film there three times i beat star wars all three days because <laughs> 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 like, i'm a local too you know and i was there like like tuesday Wednesday, yeah, promoting Thursday. yeah, yeah. flyering and all that but it, but that was kind of the you think you're dealing with these like the regals in these places and they're like why I want to pull like Captain America out of a theater to put your little dinky film in there, you know? What you know, I'm gonna lose money. It's like, no, you're not. I mean, there's, there's ten thousand workers in this area. I'm not saying they're all gonna come here, 
but some of them are going to come here. Some of their family members are going to come here. I'm here on a Wednesday, and you probably got eight or nine people in there for Captain America, and I'm going to crush them. Yeah. <laughs> and now they have those Fandango events. So there was a yeah. great, uh, just amazing documentary which you should check out called Mully. Is it this guy Charles Mully, who is uh, in Kenya, and he adopted all these uh, orphans? So I saw it at the. Um, Austin Film Festival and, and met some of the filmmakers and yeah, it was an amazing experience blown away by the film it was like I, I saw the film and then was you know traveling an hour later so it was like you know wanted to catch that and head out That's and awesome. and they had it with through that um, at Regal we saw it at Regal so they had something where I don't know if that was like a Fandango thing where they had to film in like all their locations on one night because being digital now Right. They can pipe it all in and or send a file. Yeah. And it was cool. So they had it for like three nights. And wow. so it was cool. So I was able to take my niece and nephew and my mom and a, a you know friend of my family who's on my baseball podcast, Mrs. Minutes, one of my English teachers. So it was really great to be able to see that movie just on that limited run. Wow. And, and because of social media, knowing what it's all about, Twitter, hey, Molly's going to be in Regal Theaters this date, and so, or let me send it out. And, and then one thing that they were doing was trying to get churches to go see it. Yeah. Um, like, get yeah. your church group together, go see it. It's a really inspiring film, which is amazing. And, yeah, so, so it's cool that, like, they have those programs. I'm not necessarily sure how you reach out, but I guess with enough time. Yeah. And then you may be able to do a, a more expansive run in different theaters, or maybe you're like four walling, you're buying the time ahead yeah. of time. And then they're like, you know, it's like a consignment type basis. I, I don't fully know. I haven't really looked into it at this point. Well, yeah, I, I was, that's, that's good information though. Filmmakers come up. That's good information. Uh, and that's what, that's another thing that I've tried to do is try to tell other filmmakers about, what worked for me, what didn't work for me, you know, as yeah. I, as I, as I'm going along, because uh, I've learned, you know, this is all new to me. I never try to contact a, a movie chain and try to come into a theater, but, but I would know, cause you know, I like movies like you, you know, I go to the movies and uh, I know people like to jam in on Friday, Saturday nights and stuff. So I don't try to, I don't try to compete with a Hollywood film on a Friday night oh, or never. Saturday night, yeah. but I, I can compete on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night, you know, cause people, you know, Heck smaller yeah. groups are coming in. And you got to, and I, you you target areas, you know, it's like, I'm going to where Hanford is. I'm going to where Oak Ridge is. I'm going to like these places. I've done my research. Yeah. You know, thanks. Very cool, man. So what, uh, you know, I'll get a couple of questions to finalize more like philosophical or just life type questions. But uh, I guess what's the best lesson that you've learned from your profession? Wow. Best lesson that I've learned from my profession. I would say, uh, do a job that you love. You got two, I, I call it two lives. You got your uh, leisure time and your work time. You're going to love your leisure time because it's your leisure time. You're doing whatever you want to do, you know, hanging out, whatever. If, if you, if you love your work time, you'll be loving everything all the time. You know, it's just like, Hey, you know, it's great to go to work because it's fun, you know, and it's, I speak to classes, you know, you come in and do that career thing. And, uh, I always tell, I always tell kids like, do what you love. Think about what you love and find a job that does that, you know, that you can do for that. You like to watch movies, you know, <laughs> maybe you want to be, maybe you want to produce a movie or whatever, or 
Because, uh, yeah, all or the kids. Not, maybe that changes your love for me. I know. Maybe you're like, oh, crap. I don't want to be. Depending the, on how you look at it. Kids, they, they, they all want to know about money. They're like, how much money you make? I want to know. Do you make a lot of money? Do you make yeah, do you make a do you make a ton of money? And it's like, look, don't focus so much on money, okay? Just focus on what you know. You can make money, uh, but trust me, you go into a job that you hate. You ain't you're not gonna be happy, and you want to be happy. And um, you know, you can make investments. Uh, I don't know. You can work a job that you feel like, hey, I'm passionate. I am. I'm a school teacher or whatever. But like, maybe I make investments in real estate or something on the side or whatever for my extra money or whatever. But I want to work with kids, mm-hmm. and it's like I'm not gonna get rich working with kids, but I want to work with those kids. So don't trap yourself in a financial situation like that. Yeah, and I, and I think the big thing, and I wish somebody would have told me this, but but it's a bit of a process. So maybe a, a ten year. 10 year uh, experience before you actually earn any money. Yeah. And it just seems like yeah, the filmmaking thing, it was kind of like the lottery. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm going to put this out and maybe this will hit big. Uh, and then, yeah, you're, you're just like buying those lotto tickets. No doubt. So it's more that like you stayed at the long process, make those investments. And then in like 10 or 15 years, then you have that flexibility to do more of these things. So it's, I, so it's a marathon, totally. It is. Now, here's the, here's 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 something to flip the script. I do have a sponsor, United Energy Workers Healthcare. And it, these guys are a home healthcare uh-huh. organization. So if you get compensated, you know, you can get home healthcare. And so they looked and said, well, here's a guy. This guy made a film about what we do. You know, let's, let's, let's team up with this guy. I had never heard of that happening before. I've, you know, as a filmmaker, like who has a sponsor for their film? That's fantastic. Yeah. So that's something that, you know, filmmakers might want to think about and say, hey, who's um, who's somebody I could partner with or whatever? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like I, you could just go on your own. Initially, I was going on my own. I would just go to different cities and think, well, there's a lot of people. Well, there's a lot of workers there or there's an environmental group there, uh, you know, Snake River Alliance. Uh, out of Idaho, they were fantastic, amazing. Uh, took me all over Idaho, which is a beautiful state. I, I like, I'd never been there, uh, and I was all over it. I was like, yeah, I could see why you guys are fighting to protect this land because it is absolutely amazing and just incredibly beautiful. But they were, you know, smart, really smart um, environmentalists, like veterans man and i just sat and i just listened to them like you know because they i was staying at different people's houses you know other environmental houses you know to save money as i was going to city to city to screen and i was just listening to them talk man i was like man these are some smart people these you know these women that they've been out there doing it and i was just kind of like like to team them up with like other you know other environmentalists you know it's like hey you know, listen to this person over here. You know, check yeah, out. Yeah, that's always fun to do, and yeah. you get, you know, the hard work done. Did you edit? Did you edit your film as well, or did you have I, somebody help you? I actually edited my film uh, myself. I wanted my uh, one of my coworkers, Chris Felt. Yeah, I said your name, Chris Felt. I said your name. Yeah, <laughs> she's amazing. She's like just an incredible editor. I wanted her to edit it, but you know, I didn't have any money pair, and it's such a long thing i kept thinking oh i'll get some grant money and blah blah blah, and i'll be able to pay her and it's just uh you know i'm a decent editor i consider her a real editor <laughs> you know? and i i'm like a 
I just had to I had to just take my game to another level to get this thing done. And uh you know I'm happy uh, mm-hmm. decent with it. You know, I this is I one of my proudest moments was I've always you know, we we talk about the the um the importance of sound, you know, and how people get irritated if they can't hear something. You yeah, know, Chuck and I were talking about that, how sometimes people cut corners on sound. It's like, no, don't cut corners on sound. You can't do it. Because you're done. I mean, you just you just can't ADR yeah, in a documentary, there's no way. There's no way. And so um I can't remember what city I was in. I was I was in another city and this man brought this this blind woman up to me and she said um are you the filmmaker <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I said yes ma'am she said well i'm blind and i wanted to thank you first of all for making a film like this and second of all i could hear every word and i hate these films where the music's too loud and i can't hear you know <laughs> i just thought it was like the ultimate compliment from yeah, this did lady. you have somebody sweeten it or did you do that yourself i didn't do i did it all that myself man i did man, the motion bro. graphics i did everything man I, get, I have to see it's been a while since i've seen it i need to see it again now that it's fresh and that we've talked about it yeah it's just <laughs> every time you know it's it's usually it's my film is one of those things where people always say it's like i see something different every time i watch that film you know because it's you know there is a ton of stuff packed and loaded in there, but I I felt like hey look man everything's digital. I mean it's, people are gonna mm-hmm. be watching stuff. You can watch something ten times if you want to, or you can pause it or back it up. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't that concerned because some people were like, "Are you overdoing it? Is there too much stuff?" Or you mm-hmm. know, and I said, "This may be the only film I ever make. Somebody, you know." can watch it a bunch of times if they want to. I do that with films. You know, I look at a film and I look back again. I'm like, or somebody will say something to me about, did you see that? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I missed that. Let me go back and look at that. <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, yeah, it was, uh, he, he, I had some help from uh, Chris Ballou. You know Chris, I think. The name's familiar, but I, I can't say that I've met. Chris. Yeah, he he's a, he he's directed. He's he works in town and done a lot of live stuff. He's he's a brilliant mind. I mean, he loves film and he's just a really smart guy. And I was just he I was bouncing stuff off him all the time. I I'd send him like sections, and he he called it spitballing, which he'd be oh, like, yeah, yeah. get rid of this or that yeah. that this too long, cut this out, you know. And you need that objective eye, somebody that's seeing it for the first time to give you those suggestions because you just yeah. get you just get numb to it and yeah. and certain things you just don't see because your brain is filling in those blanks you're 100 it's correct. amazing or a certain edit you're not gonna it may be there might be a frame in there and you've seen it so many times that your mind has just completely overlooked that frame yeah it's amazing it's you know that's an excellent point it's so all i am um, wendy verhoff who is in my my film she's a historian she's she's in there she's she I had her come over and look at like the beginning of the film, the, like the first like first draft of like the early part of the film. And she looks at it and she looks at me. And she says, you kind of skipped over World War Two. You don't have enough World War Two in there. And I was like, I got to explain World War Two to people. People don't know what World War Two is. And she's like, I teach young people for a living, Tony. And I can assure you they don't. Mm-hmm. Do you need to explain 
you know, yeah, I was like, and you don't want to, you know, as well as that, you don't want to get too far into World War II because yeah. there's all these historians. If you get something wrong, everybody's going to do it. It's like, oh, oh you, yeah. da, 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 you know, so it's like, ah, but she was right. Though. You got to touch on it because that was the origin of it. Yeah. Like, why? What's the catalyst? What's the why? Exactly. You know, why were we manufacturing it? Why do we do it in these areas? This and that. Then that sets up everything else. I totally agree with you. And it's like the mindset. And it's just people are, you know, I wanted to put people Look, we were in a serious war that we needed to win, you know? Yeah, and, and you like and and that was a war that wasn't an ideological war. That was something where I mean the, the the as quickly as the Germans were moving and the Japanese and everything else, it was I mean that could have changed the world. If you look at these alternate yeah. all these alternate history fictions and and the man in the the high castle, you look at things like that, mm-hmm. like what would the world have been? So it was uh yeah. yeah, yeah, it's tough. So they were, you know, at that time in that lens, they were, okay, we need to move on this quick. We need this technology and yada, yada. So, yeah. So, yeah, so you can see yeah. why versus uh, something like, okay, we need this for profits. Right. So I, it's, yeah. it's interesting when you look at things through a different lens. And, and I think she was correct with that. Having that historical perspective, then that really paints the picture. And then moving on in the 50s and all that, it's a little different story. So then that gets into what you're talking about and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, it's all yeah. all interesting elements in that story structure. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm so happy that I went back and did that. I took her advice on that because it, you know, it. Yeah, it really it really sets everything up. And and like I, the, the thing that fascinated fascinated me about this from the very beginning from the very beginning, there was kind of like this cavalier like attitude, reckless attitude with, with like the most dangerous materials on the planet. But these guys were just kind of, I mean, they were initially going to do this, this, this chain reaction uh, way out in the woods in the middle of nowhere, which is Argonne National Laboratory now. But back then it was like, hey, let's go way out because they knew how dangerous it was. Let's, let's go way out there in the woods. And there was like this there was just this work stoppage or something out there. And it's like, oh, well, let's just do it at the University of Chicago. Really? You know? <laughs> <laughs> or this is like, or what is it, 1940-something, you got the power of the government. You know, what do you want these guys want an extra nickel an hour? Why don't you just pay that? Oh, no. Can't pay somebody extra money. That's crazy talk, you know? <laughs> so it's just like, from the very beginning, there was like this attitude of like, yeah, we can set the chain reaction off right here, you know, at the University of Chicago. It's like, now you really should probably shouldn't be doing that. And they got away with it, but mm-hmm. could have been very, very, very bad. Yeah, this has been fascinating. One last question, and uh, it's a serious one. All right. Are you able to do push-ups like your brother Marlon? <laughs> <laughs> I am not anywhere near that. My brother Marlon has been doing these push-ups uh, to draw attention uh, to gun violence. And he basically... Uh, he does a, a one push-up for every person that's been killed the day before. So, you know, um, unfortunately, he's doing too many push-ups. I mean, he's, he's doing like, you know, some days I guess he'll do like 35 or some days he may maybe do 40 or something like that. Um, and so uh, he's trying to go the entire year and um, he hasn't missed any days uh, yet and so I was just I just visited him out there in California and I I I I videotaped him uh, in in a couple of spots out there it was cool to participate that with him and I try to 
help Sheridan. He'll probably start getting more attention once he gets around, you know, June or he gets he's or he's 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 done a hundred days or he's done two hundred days. And I'm sure somebody will probably will do you know maybe even do a story on him. And then once you get later closer to the end, it's like, well, how many has he done? Is it this many? Minutes? And it's really. Uh, it's sad. It's too. It's it's too many. It's too many lives, and it's just. But he's been learning a lot about, you know, these situations, and they're mm-hmm. just really yeah. abusive. Like if somebody's like, you know, I'm being I'm beating up my wife or beating up uh, my girlfriend, you know, and they and they just like, I shot my the person shoots their wife and their girlfriend and their kids. You know, it's it's, it's a lot of that. It's just just a lot of domestic abuse, and people yeah. are like, oh, someone's crazy. It's really like, ah, my wife doesn't want to be with me anymore. I'm gonna have to kill her. You know, that is that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the more interesting things he told me was like, uh, Super Bowl Sunday was the fewest push-ups he did. Like people, I guess we're just watching the game, and then um, that is so, interesting. Then, so he's. Because I didn't, I didn't realize I saw it caught my eye because he was doing this fly type push up, which at some point I'd love to ask him or get. To, I want to see yeah. how to do this. It was, it was yeah. insane. It's an insane it type was, of push up. I've never seen that kind of push up. Uh, but I didn't realize at the time. Yeah, that was because I think that day he was doing thirty five of those, yeah. and I didn't realize until you just said that now. That yeah. wow, that's a daily tie or the day before. Yeah. I was thinking it was like a cumulative for that year but whoa that's yeah. even more oh yeah. wow man that just psh, it smacked yeah. me in the face it's crazy and what he'll it's on facebook uh and i think he's on instagram at um yeah and if he if somebody he wants exposure i'll put a link to yeah. what he's doing into your episode here and thanks then, for that uh, yeah you know to help help give him you know just more views or whatnot or yeah, a little more exposure we've got you think i appreciate ken yeah. yeah we've got all these you know we got these, these horrible crimes and all these these shootings it's this you know well we got to figure out and especially if you're talking about those all that domestic i mean we're going deeper into what is causing this why are we as americans just so off the rails with all this that that is what's happening Right, and it, who knows what it could be? Is it what's in our food? What's in our water? This and that. We're so unhappy. We're so stressed out because we have these stand. I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to but, realize. Wow, man, that's 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 a whole nother conversation. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is out to come back in and give you my whole. Uh, I've got my whole uh, <laughs> my plan to, uh, you know, at least make things a little bit harder for people to just like you know if somebody comes in and just buying like a. You know, uh, cartridge after cartridge after cartridge, and they went like, you know, do you do you need to be buying thirty guns? And like, what's going on here? You know, so it just uh, and almost every time when you look at those people, they were beating up their wife or girlfriend. They're almost almost all of them were very abusive. Yeah, so there's something deeper, and what we where does that stem from? You know, how many generations is that? What you know, just, just, I, I don't know, man. It's, that's, that's, that's heavy. Yeah. But, um, where can, where can the audience go to see your film? Oh, thanks. Well, it, the film is on Amazon prime and you, if you are a prime member, you can watch it on there for free. Uh, but if you're not a prime member, uh, you can still watch it and it's on iTunes and it's at, you can, you can go to the safe side of the fence.com or, you know, you could just type, the safe side of the fence into Amazon. It's going to come up, 
you know, and you could get a DVD from the main site, the safe side of com. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. It's- thanks for, thanks for having me on. It's like, it's, 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 it's a blast talking to you anyway. And it's just, uh, I really appreciate being on your show. Cause like I said, I'm a fan of your show <laughs> and you. Well, that means a lot, a Tony, time. man. Much love to you, brother. You, you too. You too, my brother.